Geez, it seems like burying your parents is the right thing to do. That was one reaction of the eight young adults which helped me create today's sermon. In preparation for today, I had this text and invited people between the ages of 19 and 29 to reflect on the text with me. Here were some of the other first responses. Yeah, Jesus seems to lack compassion, like, who cares about your dad? We gotta go. Another said, is Jesus shaming him? It feels like he's shaming him for caring about his parents, like, get over it. Yeah, another said, it seems unfair. It's hard to lose someone important to you. And still another person said, it's like Jesus's first reaction is, you're wrong. I invited several young adults to help me in preparation for today's sermon and ended up with eight. They were arranged in the age, as I mentioned, from 19 to 29. You know all of them, and if you don't know each of them, then you know you're one degree separated from them. We met in three different meetings on Zoom because of their schedules, a group of three, a pair, and another group of three. Our meetings were at 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. because of their schedules. And even at that hour, several of them hadn't had dinner yet. They were planning to eat after our meeting. Such is the life of young adults in this 21st century. None of them were available to come to church today. Some of them are out of town all summer, and there were a couple that were going to the New York City Pride Parade today. Yet I wanted to bring their voices into our common space. So I asked them, as we read the passage from the message, what do you hear? What is it that you hear when we hear this lesson? Now the lesson that we read and responded to is the same gospel passage, but it's from the translation called The Message, created by Eugene Peterson, a pastor who was burned out from ministry and took a year, I think, off, at least six months, and in that time decided to first engage the gospel texts and to rewrite them in a way that our ears could hear them a little bit better. So that's what we read together. And here it is. When it came close to the time for his ascension, Jesus gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead. They came to a Samaritan village to make arrangements for his hospitality. But when the Samaritans learned that his destination was Jerusalem, they refused hospitality. When the disciples, heard, the disciples James and John learned of it, they said to Jesus, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? Jesus turned on them, of course not. And they traveled on to another village. On the same road, someone asked if he could go along. I'll go with you wherever, he said. Jesus was curt. Are you ready to rough it? We're not staying in the best inns, you know. Jesus said to another, follow me. He said, certainly, but first, excuse me for a couple of days, please. I have to make arrangements for my father's funeral. Jesus refused. First things first, your business is life, not death, and life is urgent. Announce God's kingdom. Then another said, I'm ready to follow you, master, but first, excuse me while I get this thing straightened out at home. Jesus said, no procrastination. 
No backward looks. You can't put God's kingdom off till tomorrow. Seize the day. After these initial strong reactions that I shared with you at the top of this homily, everyone started to settle in and allow their observations to go deeper. And I found in there reflections about four points that I want to make from this text today. First is our inclination to negotiate with God. The various participants said these things. There's always one more thing. Another said, when's the time that you're going to catch up? Another asked, or noticed, if you grant one exception, then there will be others. Another person asked the question, what is a legitimate excuse for not following Jesus? And still yet another person said, if it wasn't this, the most worthy excuse, then it would be something else. I let my pen capture their exact words. Struck was I by the level of depth in their reflections. This is an intense passage and not one that we can feel very friendly towards because we don't feel like it's very friendly toward us, and yet they didn't shy from that truth. Instead, they engaged and remembered other things that they know. And in their reflections and our inclination to negotiate with God, they wondered aloud if perhaps there's a collective sense that Jesus is embarking on something bigger than our own personal concerns, something with it, which addresses our own personal concerns. Negotiation might be our first response, and in and through it, we can ultimately come to recognize our limited understanding. Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. The second observation from their words is about setting our priorities. One person said, we can have distractions for moving forward on the journey. The road's not easy. This journey motif is in Luke's gospel. Luke, Luke conveys Jesus's work as a journey. And as one commentary said, don't try to plot his journey. You're not gonna find it on a map. This is Luke's narrative um, uh, process. This is his narrative, that Jesus is on the move, and he talks about what Jesus is up to as Jesus is on the move. And Luke, who is also the writer of the book of Acts, does the same thing, employs the same practice of being on a journey. Jesus has set his face for Jerusalem, a place that the Samaritans did not recognize as God's spot, and so the Samaritans refused Jesus' hospitality. Jesus had gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem, from which we gain an insight about the difficulty of what he's about to face. He has a singular focus. So one young adult said, if you're wanting to make a difference, you have to set priorities. Another said, we need a reality check. What should the true priorities be? Together, noting that there isn't a clear path to the destination and many variables will be encountered along the way, Jesus is looking for people who want to have their sense of place in him over and against the materiality of their lives. One person, the oldest person in this spectrum of people, said there is poverty in the spiritual life. Part of that poverty is giving up your certainty for how your life should go. Another person said, having to rely on others isn't easy. 
And still yet another person noticed that force doesn't create peace, noting that Jesus doesn't force the person to take action and follow him. He gives each person a choice. The third point that came from our conversations is our need to choose the future. Not to idealize the future, but to choose to move into the future. This is what one young adult said. Choose the future. Jesus is looking to make a new way, and it's not behind us. I agree. To be sure, it will incorporate, though, all the wisdom that came before. For Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The question then is, how are we joining Jesus in the movement forward, incorporating the wisdom of the past? The illustration that is often offered in our gospel text today about setting your hand to the plow and not looking back highlights that your plow line will be curved and not good if you are not facing forward. Kind of like driving a car, you can't do that by looking in your rearview mirror. Hearing this commitment or this encouragement from this particular person to choose the future got me to thinking about the significance of young people in our lives. For I I believe that we do ourselves and young people a disservice by not figuring out how to be together. We as a church do a disservice by letting this fall by the wayside. When I invited each of these young adults, I did so via text. Some of them I contacted their parents first to get their cell phones. They couldn't all get together at the same time, so I set three different times. None of them was bothered by the small group or the fact that we were on Zoom. If you looked at St. Stephen's, you'd say that there's no young adult ministry happening here. We don't have a program for young adults, and there's not a box to check off on our welcome card. But it makes me wonder, what would you call what happened? What do you call those gatherings? And then I further wonder, are we as the church willing to develop together some new ways of being in being the church, starting with something so small as connecting with the young adults that we're already connected with? We know that we need them. However, we often talk about it in a way that denies their humanity and ours as well. We'll talk about securing the future of the institution of the church. Or we'll talk about butts and seats as if they're a statistical data point. I do agree that the church will die without young people, but it's not because I'm worried about statistics. I believe that we need to pay attention to the nuance of their participation in our lives. To say that the church will die because we we won't won't be availing ourselves of the new life that young people bring is true, and it's because we don't incorporate their youthfulness. Young people choose the future. That's what they have. And we need them to help us do the same. The fourth feature of our conversation is that ultimately Jesus is compassionate. Here is what our young adults said. Reflecting on James and John's question, Do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down to incinerate them? One person said, what? No! As if imagining Jesus responding to James and John, what? No! (laughs) 
Another pointed out that Jesus is saying, let it go, don't lash out. Another person said, he has a sense of urgency, Jesus, but he doesn't have impatience. He's not mad at people. He's not mad at people, which is how impatience shows up. He's only saying, now is the time, literally, now. It's just now. Another notice that Jesus speaks words of truth. They characterize it as tough love. That person went on to say, something, sometimes Jesus says something that you need to hear that you might not want to hear. He's direct about it, another person says. He needs to be a direct about it out of love for us, for all of creation. And yet still another person said he speaks of a bigger picture, which is something that ultimately all of us want. That person went on to say Jesus is talking about a sacrifice which is for the sake of humanity, something we don't do very well as Americans, this individual said. We need to recognize the power of this valued sacrifice and to join him in it. I found myself encouraged by our conversation, these quotes that I sought to organize for your access, and was further affirmed in the fact that young people bring energy and hope. Older people, of which I'm going to put myself apart, I'm putting myself apart of this demographic, older people, bring wisdom or at least a recognition that there is wisdom in this world that is beyond our creating. And so together with young people, we can entertain these kind of questions. How do we work through our inclination to negotiate with God? How do we work through our inclination to negotiate with God? What tools do we use to assist us in listening more deeply to the truth that Jesus offers us. Or another question that their words bring to my mind, how do we set our priorities and then stick with them when the going gets tough? What encouragement do we need, do each of you need, and how do you access it? Another question that comes to my mind from their words is how do we choose the future? What are some of the ways that we know our next step into the future? And finally, how do we allow God's compassion to shape our reality? Literally, what do we do in our lives, in our routines, to allow God's compassion to shape our reality? These questions have emerged from their observations, which I think are sound to the text. And one young person who really wanted to offer their feedback but wasn't able to be a part of the conversation sent me an email just this morning and highlighted the difficulty of the text and yet said, the events and themes that occurred in Jesus' time on earth can still be seen in current events today. That's true. The wisdom of the scriptures helps us live more faithful lives. We are shaped by them. None of us is experts. 
the more that I get better at some of the fruits of the Spirit, the more I realize I can get better at the fruits of the Spirit, which are mentioned in Paul's letter to the Galatians today. This passage from his church to the, his letter to the church in Galatia is difficult to be sure, listing all kinds of works of the flesh that are obvious, he says, and which of us hasn't had at least one or two or three of those, right? Drats, ah, I'm warning you, Paul says, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we often think of the kingdom of God as out there somewhere. But I believe, and I believe Paul believes, that the kingdom of God is here in our midst, and his choice of the word inherit is because it's given to us. We do not make the kingdom of God. We just do things which help us inherit the kingdom of God. It's God's work in us. And so Paul talks about, in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit and says when we do these things, when we allow ourselves to get better and better at love or joy or peace or patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, there's no law against such things because those who do this have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, meaning they're not letting themselves move quickly with their passions and desires. Instead, they're taking a big breath to say, how can love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control inform this very moment? This is our question. How many of you were attempted to be engaged or maybe you felt the temptation to engage on Facebook or on text after the events of last week? Are we 100% on that? Something got sent to us. We sent something fueled by our passions and desires, our anger, our fear, our frustration, our confusion, anything like that, ready to let someone know and let them have it. Whatever it might be, Paul and the scriptures before, because Paul is a product of the faith. Jesus' life, he also was the product of faith. Bring to our attention that when we come together and take a collective breath into the fruit of the Spirit, then we inherit the kingdom of God. We begin to find that God makes a way for us to navigate our fear and our anger and our confusion. They don't go away per se, but they don't run the show. This is a lifelong journey, and I choose the word journey intentionally because that's what Jesus was on and that's what Jesus invites us to. We might consider, and I hope we will consider, how it is we say yes to Jesus. None of us can do it alone. We are going to need to rely on one another. And through our various generations and the gifts that we each bring, God has given us what we need to discover God's presence in our midst. Amen.